Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the founder behind the flight tracking app Flighty, Ryan Jones. Ryan, thanks for coming on. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me. So before we get into Flighty and uh, that amazing app that actually I've finally gotten to use uh, a little bit recently, which has been exciting, um, I'd like to give everyone a background on who you are. So the three questions I always start with are, where are you from? Do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then we can kind of talk through your career that led you up to Flighty. Sure. Yeah, my path might be a little bit longer because it's got a lot of wrong turns or diversions. A lot of times that's the most fun part of this podcast. Okay. So. <laughs> All right, cool. Where I'm from, I'm from the Woodlands, Texas, which sounds like it's a bunch of woods out in the middle of nowhere, but it's actually just your normal suburb outside of Houston. Uh, formal education, no, my formal education is in mechanical engineering, nothing to do with product management or computer science or anything like that. I did do kind of a half MBA, half engineering management thing uh, afterwards. So there's like a little bit of this kind of strategy, finance, business, MBA-ish thing in there too. And then story of how I got to app development or path to get here. Um, yeah, so I grew up outside of Houston, like I said. And then in that world, the only possible job that anyone would ever want to do is go into work in oil and gas. So uh, went to college and did mechanical engineering because I wasn't, I was pretty certain I didn't want to do oil. But I definitely was, I have always had like an engineering mindset, like fixing stuff, like working on stuff with my hands, right. um, building things. Um, so mechanical engineering is like the generic version of engineering. Which seems like it would be pretty relevant to the oil business. It would. Yeah. Oil, which is a whole other thing, which we can talk about. But uh, the best way I can describe it to people is it's kind of like being an astronaut. Like it's just three miles into the ground. Like nothing really is kind of like that. Like they, the guys who were petroleum engineers it just had completely different backgrounds than i did uh it's just such an insane world like nothing else is whatever uh 15, psi and like 2000 degrees fahrenheit and it's just like just the the numbers are all like so much bigger yeah uh, that you deal with totally different issues i guess yeah very different and it's like everything in their world is a pipe that is 16 inches in diameter and everything happens inside of that. And it's just like the amount that they know about like what happens with fluids and gases and everything inside of that is insane. Yeah. That would be fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was some gnarly stuff. I had a good time. So, so I did that for about four years after college. And that was on the engineering side. Yeah. So they do this like new new hire program thing it's a three-year rotation is what they call it so you go through all the main core disciplines of um like oil or gas production and then you go into whatever your specialty is so i did reservoir engineering which has a terrible name and it's basically just finance uh oh, okay for about you do everything for like nine months and then i did um field operations which that's the part that everyone finds interesting that's like fracking so everyone knows all the terrible things about fracking i did that for like a year and a quarter so i ran i was literally in the middle of woods running frack jobs uh it was super oh, man. yeah it was um i learned so much about what i would call the real world like these are people who um you know blue collar good old guys who just working and want to go home to their family and do their thing. And like, I loved it. It was, they were awesome. It's like salt of the earth guys and learn just so much. But yeah, it was like middle of nowhere. And I just go sleep out there because there was nowhere nearby. So we had like a trailer and I work out of the trailer and I was kind of like, they call him the company man, which oil has all these amazing phrases. <laughs> it sounds very like, uh, like 19, you know, early 1900s. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, so it's an awesome in an ironic way. Um, so they would ask me questions and I would basically relay what was happening to the office and double check things. And then that made it sound like I did nothing at all, but it was awesome. <laughs> uh, so, okay, where was I? I was in two or three. So I did reservoir engineering, which is finance, production, which is in the field and drilling, which is like what everybody sees in the movies. Um, that was crazy okay. too. Just the size, people don't understand the size and the scope and the amount of money. Like we'd be spending a million dollars a day. Like I would be signing checks for 
a million dollars and I was like 23 or something. And that wasn't going into, you know, a server farm somewhere that was like steel and pipes and actual real machinery. Yeah. So, so uh, if you imagine an 18 wheeler, they make 18 wheelers that the entire 18 wheeler is a pump, just one pump that pumps water. And oh my goodness. So each one has like 4,000 horsepower and we would use about 20 of them and hook them all up in series yeah in series and just pump water as fast and as hard and as high pressure as you can and that basically breaks the rock up so that oil can flow backwards into the well um so there's a ton of pressure very risky actually we had to do a ton of safety stuff because i think something like 200 250 psi can just cut your skin and we were doing you know twelve thousand psi so any if there's a mistake it's just like big big problems hence the whole other field of mechanical engineering that's pretty much devoted just to this. <laughs> yeah. Petroleum engineering, but yes, same thing. Or petroleum engineering. Sorry. Yeah. Got to get it right, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> so as usual, we go off into a huge oil and gas diversion because it is, it is really interesting um, and people don't usually know a lot about it and have a ton of questions. Yeah. Yeah. So it towards, towards the end of fracking was, or my time fracking was when the iPhone and third-party apps all started. And so I was just literally okay. sitting in an 18-wheeler like in front of like 25 TV screens showing like real-time pressure and real-time flow rates and stuff like that and trying to make decisions about what to do. And then in between what we call frack jobs, which they would take like three hours and you have three hours off to get ready for the next one, I would just be on Tweety reading about what's happening in app world and like, oh my God, people... I guess it does make sense. Like somebody somewhere has to make this software. Wow. These are those people. And it was just like a thing I never knew existed. So Twitter specifically connected you to the world of the people behind the software that you were kind of used to using already. Yep. Yeah. It's a good question. How did I get to Twitter? Probably Mac rumors. I'd always been a big Mac rumors reader. And then just, you know, remember that time when any new app was coming out and people were diving into every single little characteristic of it. And I found, yeah, I found Lauren Brichter um, and then later the Tapbots guys. And it was just really blew my mind that, yes, the software has to come from somewhere. You know, I was like, I was just 22 and thought it came from the clouds. <laughs> so that it was funny, you know, it doesn't seem very related, but like what I enjoy doing engineering wise like looking at a problem, solving a problem, thinking about how I could do it better. Like I do a lot of like home improvement type stuff. And I kind of, you know, the same kind of nerd that has a lot of the characteristics of the people that would listen to this podcast of like, you, you know, you get interested in something, really dig into it, read about it, learn how people who do it really well do it and then go execute it or kind of put your little twist on it to be like, oh, I wish they'd done it this way. So I, I saw that in building products and software. And, you know, I had never... My heart really wasn't in oil and gas. Like I kind of mentioned that from the beginning. It was just, that was the world that you grew up in. And so that was sort of the natural. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the very first summer in college, um, this is so Houston, but um, (laughs) our driveway uh, was a two car driveway and I got in a car because I was whatever, 16. Uh, and I was like, oh, there's not enough place room to park. So I was pouring the concrete to extend it into a three car wide driveway just because that's how my brain works. And, uh, some VP of an oil company walked by and he was like, what are you doing? Like, why didn't you just pay someone to do that? And I was like, I don't know. I just looked up how to do it and bought the rebar and I'm just doing it. And he's like, what are you doing next summer? And I was like, I, I don't know. And he's like, okay, well, if you want to work for my oil company, I got a job for you. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. So, so it really is like. Uh, that makes me think of so many Silicon Valley stories of like, uh, I guess because it's such a small world mm-hmm. that it's actually concentrated. You can have these random chance encounters that turn into a new career or whatever. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's probably an exact parallel to Houston and oil. It's just like what everybody huh. does. So I got a taste of the oil money uh, and the oil lifestyle. <laughs> and then every summer when I was like, man, what am I going to do for my internship this year? It's like, well... I made tens of thousands of dollars for like three or four months of work. Let's go do that again. And I really enjoyed yeah. it. Like it's not to, I did really like it. It's kind of dangerous actually. And the reason I got out of it so swiftly is because I, after I came back to the field from doing all this frack jobs, so I was back in the office, you know, as a, someone who'd been in learning for three years and thought that they Company knew everything man. in the world. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> back in the office with all the big wigs and um, it's like, man, this, it's a good job. So we only worked... Well, not only we got every other Friday off, 
Um, it's just a thing in the oil industry that like became common. Um, so we got every other Friday off and, you know, was making six figures easily. Like if you, I always laugh cause those salary reports come out every year or something and people on Twitter or people in the industry are always like, Oh my God, software engineering is not number one. It's always petroleum engineering. Like the starting salary is, I think it's like 150,000 or 125,000 these days and straight out of college. Yeah. yeah that's right out of college. And yeah. yeah. So it was. Yeah. Great money, great people, easy, quote unquote, work. Like it was nine to five, get your stuff done. Every other Friday you have off. So it was tough to leave from that point of view. Like I did like it. Like it was a nine out of 10 on my job scale. And so I, I kind of, when I got back to the office, it was like, man, if basically what happened is I was like, I can see myself doing this until I'm 40, 50, 60, and then being like, oh, shit, I, should have tried something else, but it was just so easy to stay on that yeah, track. It's, it's stable, safe. Exactly. So I, I was like, I like now I have to do it now. I have to do it now. And do it meaning in that case, software or like you had kind of already decided or you mean leave and do something else just generally. Yeah. So th- what had been happening is, you know, I was watching all these uh, teams make, or I guess it was individuals a lot back then making uh, successful apps. And I kept thinking like, I, I could probably do that. I could probably do that. I tried to learn to code a couple times and it was just miserable. Like I, I would make it like, I'm talking like a day and a half and I'd be like, I'm out. I can't do this. Um, it just, I don't know, maybe one day it'll click for me, but it's never clicked for me. So I had a lot of self-doubt, right? It's like all these people that are doing this are solo software engineers who built on the Mac for a decade before iOS came along. Right. And like, I didn't, there were no like, mobile product engineers back then like or a product managers i should say or like there wasn't that much mobile design like it was all just starting so i was like i don't like seems kind of crazy that a mechanical engineer is going to be good at this so what i did was i was like i'll leave the oil company and get myself six months i don't know where this came from it's just you know trying to time box things i was like i got six months exactly and i had had the idea for weatherline since like iPhone 3G, like uh, for some reason it just stuck in my head and I didn't understand why no one was making it. Like literally, so iOS 3 or 4 would come out and it'd be like, all right, this is the year. I'm going to open up the weather app, Apple's weather app, and it's going to look exactly like what I envisioned Weatherline because it just makes so much sense. Like why are they not building it? I don't understand. And and when you say Weatherline, for anybody who doesn't know, this is specifically you're talking about the view of it being a line, like through the day you can see what the temperature is as a line kind of. Yep. Going up and down. And then specifically the weekly view, like I had seen, yeah, it's still on Weather Underground today, but um, Weather Underground does like a graph of the temperature, but it literally follows the highs in like every single hour. So when you look at the graph, it just looks like a sine curve and it's like, I can't get anything from that. Oh yeah. And the weather line kind of one of the insights was splitting daily highs into nightly lows. Um, So that kind of view was the thing I was always like, oh, Apple's going to do it this year. And they just never did. Interesting. And, but there wasn't anybody else doing that. It wasn't like there was a website doing that. You just were like, this is the obvious uh, way that you think this should work. And so you're just sort of expecting, if I'm thinking of it, surely somebody will at Apple or wherever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As far as I know, uh, I never found a site that had done it. And I tried because I was like, I don't, Trust me, nothing would be greater than to just find this thing and I don't have to yeah. build it. <laughs> well, we, I think we've all been there where you're just like, surely this exists. Like, I uh, I can't be the only one who's thought this. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's like, it's so obvious. Um, and sometimes it's not at all and it's an idiotic idea and it collapses and sometimes it works. <laughs> True. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's kind of a decent tangent into people always ask like, what ideas do you work on and how did you decide to work on Weatherline? And you know, this has only started to been like, uh, formulated in my mind over like the last three or four years. But basically what I do is I just have a notes folder in the notes app. And as I think of ideas, which is way too often, I'll just write down a couple sentences about it in the app and give it a name, just whatever, weather line. Has its own note immediately. Yep. Okay. And then nine times out of 10, you wake up the next day and you're like, that was idiotic. Delete that. <laughs> like, wow, that was really dumb. And Effectively, what I do is I wait until it sticks around really long time. <laughs> and, I, you know, and when you have it in the back of your mind, like something will go by Twitter or something will happen in a daily conversation or you'll see someone using a weather app 
and I'll be like, Hey, what, what do you think about this? Like what, what if it worked like this? Or uh, why is no one doing it like this? So at any given time, there's whatever, three or four of those things that I'm just thinking about. Um, and then as stuff come, as stuff happens, or I think like, Oh, that, that anecdote that I just got shows that this actually would work or wouldn't work. And I'll kind of just write it in the note for that idea. And then this is kind of the sad part to me, at least is it takes like three or four years of that thing sticking around for me to be like, all right, I'll do that. And that that's how Weatherline happened. That's how Flighty happened. That's funny. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm similar. I have, I have a note that is just ideas, mm-hmm. which is literally anything. And it's an outline view of really generic things. And I do the same thing where it's like, I just put, you know, uh, like weather app and then I just throw ideas in there over time and if it grows big enough because I just keep thinking of things that it looks really silly mm-hmm. then it graduates to its own note mm. and then it's like it sort of grows over time and eventually either I'm like okay I just can't do this well and then it just lives forever which there's a couple that are like that and I still to this day will wake up in the middle of the night and add a new idea to it mm-hmm. um, or if I'm like I need a new project I'll kind of look through that list and maybe pick one that seems like it's easy or something. Um, it sounds like a lot of people have a similar sort of thing. It's like, you have to get these ideas out of your head somehow. Yeah. Um, doesn't it feel, it, I mean, for me, it feels so depressing that it takes me so long to be like, okay, I'll do that one. <laughs> it takes like three well, or four years. I can say that the very, the first one I've had, uh, I had, this is way before I was doing iOS development, but mm-hmm. when I first switched to iOS, actually I may have been, I was on Android actually this, when this started. So it started as an Android idea. To this day, I still add things to it and I've never picked it up. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, it's like a a decent idea. And I've thought about trying to convince friends to do it uh, because I'm like, I just want this to exist, but I can't quite get to the point where I'll jump into it. So I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good filter. And I'm sure you know this feeling too, but like you'll see a new company or a new product and you're like, Ooh, that sounds like what my note app is. And you open it up and you're like, Party, sometimes your part, part of you is like, man, I hope it's exactly the same thing and I hope it goes super well and I'll be like, damn it, I should have done that. That was a great idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or sometimes you're like, I hope it's the exact same thing and it just burns down in flames so that I knew that I made the right decision not doing it. And it's just a weird, like, I, I don't know how my mind goes one way or the other. Yeah. Or, or you'll see it and you... If it's one of those ideas that you still think you're going to do in your head mm-hmm. and you you open up the website and then you see like, oh, they missed that one important yeah. thing. Good deal. Like, I'm still good. Uh, the hope's still alive. <laughs> exactly. It's it's uh, such, I don't know what it is, naivety or ignorance of like, yeah. oh, that one product thing is going to change everything. Or just uh, overwhelming confidence. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I've got it all figured before out. Before you've actually had to try and do it for real, it seems like it's so easy. Yeah. No, um. <laughs> I haven't tried to build anything and no users have interacted with it and told me, oh, this is a stupid idea, but man, my, this thing on paper is genius. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, you so you at some point decided you're going to give yourself six months yep. to try and make Weatherline happen. But at this point, you already knew coding is not mm-hmm. a thing that you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what was your next step? Because this <laughs> is something I've always been curious about. Yeah, people are always curious about this. So, I gave myself six months and I set the bar. I don't know why. I don't know how. I set the bar as if I can get this app, if I make this thing and it, I can get it into the top 10 apps in the entire app store, then that means I'm decent at this and I can keep going. And this was early app store days where those lists were like, hugely important right correct yeah and, and uh, everyone was looking at them kind of all the time because yeah uh, popular apps would come out and they're always paid up front because that's all that there was so a, a good popular app that had uh, like um, potential i would say kind of almost always had that initial spike up front and kind of how big the spike was was a pretty decent indicator of how well things were going so that was the barrier for some reason. So, what I did next, uh, in hindsight, was pretty smart, but, uh, you know, I was just stumbling around like everybody. I knew, so all I knew was people that I followed on Twitter who I thought made great products and they're great products and I would just poke around in them all day long and like learn the intricacies of it and like the UX patterns and I just thought it was so interesting that I was messing around with them. So, I knew Tapbots guys, ToyD guys, I knew all these people existing. So, what I did was I used some random site and downloaded a list of everyone who followed them and I and then uh-huh. I cross-referenced them all. So, I was like, okay, anyone who 
follows the same people that I'm following must like their work and kind of have the same ethos and design principles and be interested in this world. So combine all those, anyone who's on all of those lists, start looking through profiles and find people who are engineers and start talking to them. Wow. Just cold, cold, uh, I guess, DMing. Did Twitter have DMing at that time? Yeah, I don't even remember. But what I would do, so I, it took me a long time, I think like a lot of people, but I really finally got over the idea of uh, you're not going to tell an engineer, hey, here's the app I want to build and they're going to go steal it and build it and become billionaires and you're going to be stuck there with nothing. Uh, you were afraid like, uh, yeah, if you showed it to them that they were just going to be like, well, screw you and go build it themselves. Right. Yeah. So for anyone else who thinks that kind of the way that right now, the way I think about that and the, the way that I think is true um, is it takes a lot of heart and a lot of time and a lot of soul to build these things. And everyone has had someone come up to them and be like, oh, I have an idea for an app. Like, what about this? And 99 times out of 100, it's idiotic. Um, <laughs> and probably some of those 99 were decent ideas. You just don't care. And it's not right. in your heart. And it's not, you're not willing to put the time and the grinding into building it. So just nobody cares about your idea yeah the the con the con artist type people who mm -hmm. are going to churn out a quick clone they're the reason that's lucrative is because they're piggybacking off of all the marketing and work that the other person did but building it raw from scratch doesn't fit because it takes so much work to do that it's like a different type of person or uh i don't know what the right word is there but you know what i mean like yeah the risk of somebody just quickly cashing in on an idea is pretty low if it's just at the idea phase, I feel like. Exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, it's hard enough to get someone who like your brother or your sister or your mom to understand the app you're talking about and be like, yeah, I would use that. Like you're not going to convince right. someone to pour six months of their life into building it. Like it. So I got over that and I basically made what I call a one sheet. It was, there's a one screen pencil drawn in the middle of a eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. It was like, here's the main screen of the app. And then a bunch of arrows pointing towards different things saying what they did and like why it was unique. And then a couple bullet points out on the sideline of, you know, here's where I think we can get this data. Here's who I had in mind to do this design for stuff. So I had it all kind of pretty condensed and I just started sharing that with engineers. And so this was a design and sort of a business plan then too, I guess, because you had already looked up data providers and costs and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess that is true. That's fair. I, the good news is back at that time, it was super obvious to use Dark Skies <laughs> data. So, it was like everybody used that. And the business model was a choice of one, uh, which was paid up front or I guess totally free with, I guess they had ads, but that wasn't going to. Right. Yeah. And oh man, it's funny how much I know about the weather world now. Just <laughs> unbelievable amount. It's like, dude, you've made every single wrong choice. But back then it was, you know, it was the only choices. So, that was... How I did it, I guess. Um, I only ended up having to send it to like three or four engineers, I think, before. I found, and what I would do is basically look through their profiles and find people who, you know, I didn't want to see someone who said like, whatever, engineer at Path or like some amazing app. Like, well, I'm not going to convince that person to build this thing for me or to like do contract work. I had to find someone who, you know, I look through their tweets and kind of get a sense of who they are and like if they're interacting with people and just started asking them, Hey, I'm doing this. Would you be interested in talking about it more? And I probably got their email and then sent it over via email. Interesting. Okay. So eventually you got somebody, I don't, I don't know what the team was that you had for weatherline, at least not up front. Yeah. It was a guy yes. named guy named Marcia who was from, uh, Romania or Belarus. One of the two super great guy. And I literally just con I was like, <clears throat> here's the amount of money I will give you to build this thing, build it. And, uh, we'll go from there. And, and you know, one thing that I still use in, in hiring today that was kind of back from then was you would get people saying like engineers or designers saying that they're interested or yeah, yeah I could do that for you or what's the timeline or, you know, the, the, the kind of typical questions. Typical, but yeah. The thing that I've always found is if you, I probably shouldn't say this because now if I interview people, they'll tell me, they'll do it to me. But <laughs> the people who... We'll just beep it out as like the most important yeah, information. Yeah, it's the best though. advice in the face of the earth. If only you knew this, you'd be successful. Yeah, <laughs> uh, It's the people who start plus wanting your ideas or saying, ah, yeah, I get that. Like, ah, I understand that. What about this? Have you thought about that? 
they are understand what you're trying to do like intuitively, like instinctually, like in themselves and are excited enough about it to start adding on top of it. Which isn't something you can fake to your fear. It's like, yeah, I think the point of that is uh, the person gets it. They're not just taking the stack of requirements and implementing those requirements. They're like, I get the core of what you want and you can trust that they'll push back on certain things or add ideas in certain ways because they get the foundation. 100%. And they're excited about it, which is, you know, as you kind of interact with more and more people you work with, as you go on through life, you realize like excitement and heart and energy to work on a thing is more than 50% of it. Um, so, someone who's excited about it enough and gets it enough to start like taking ownership up of it and trying to like help you make it better is the person you want to work with. Even if there's someone who has four or five more years of experience will do it for the same price or the same whatever, um, who just wants to implement it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So then you got that built. What was, what would you say your role then was in the Mm -hmm. development of Weatherline? Was it like design and project management or was that sort of a shared role with him? Obviously, he was at the the implementation part. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so this was there was a lot of um, imposter syndrome at this time, right? Because probably no one remembers but me. But like, or you know, probably no. I'm the only one that has stuck in my head. Like, hey, dude, you need to go to therapy over this. But like, everyone online was talking about how product management or product managers was like, that's not a thing. Like you're an idiot. Like that's not a job. Mm, There was this, um, everybody wanted a flat organization where engineers talk directly to the CEO. And if you're not a CEO who has an engineering background, you're going to fail. Like it was very like, we're the software engineers. Only us, only we can do this kind of like outsider insider thing. Kicking the adults out of the room. Yeah. App director is the thing that people would throw around. Like there's no, like, people would refer to me as an app director, kind of like as a film director analogy. And there was a whole portion of the mobile and engineer world who was like, that's not a thing. You're just an annoying person over our shoulder who can't contribute (laughs) and would just on it. So I was, I had that imposter syndrome of like, okay, I need to learn how to code. The only way to add value is to learn how to code. Otherwise I'm just staring over someone's shoulder. So yeah, to your question. I was doing, it was, you know, design, business, marketing, all the iterations through, you know, people don't realize how much in hand iteration goes into an app. And to be honest, what I had to start with with Weatherline was pretty basic. Like I had the three screens and beyond that, it was like, we're going to explore this together and see how things work. Yeah. So, you know, we would like, for example, we would figure out, oh, we couldn't do a 14 day forecast. We have to do a seven day forecast. And then it there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. It's like, okay, what are all the possible icon sets? Okay. How do I make good icons for that? Okay. How do they look on a line? And you know, it's funny, you go look at Weatherline now and I would say hopefully that it just kind of all works together, but it took so much iteration to learn. Like if you go look at the icons, they're basically, what's the word when it's just like a line drawing? Uh, I mean like outline. Yeah. Kind of like an outline. Like they're not multiple colors. They Mm, don't sit on a white background. They kind of all blend into the line. Like it took three or four iterations to learn that that's kind of the only way to do it. All those kinds of things. And then certain shapes work really well on a line. So like if, if there's like a horizontal design component of like a sun, like let's say it's like six rays and it's horizontal, then it's always going to look weird because the line is probably going through the middle of the horizontal line. So you got to get away from all those kinds of things. So I was sketching those and then getting a designer to make them pixel perfect. Um, so it's doing all that kind of in the weeds stuff. Yeah. Well, and that's, we've talked about it a bunch on the show, especially with where there's like, it's the one person, you know, indie shop kind of deal. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to, to have the perspective of not being the person in the weeds, like in the weeds, meaning in the code itself. Yep. Yep. And I think simply having from a like QA perspective, um, but especially from a product perspective like what features make sense and what don't Mm -hmm. it might feel like a really clever or cool technical feature but if it's not right you know for the actual product uh it's sometimes it's really hard to separate yourself out from how it's working underneath the scenes 100 i get into this with design too because now i do a little bit more design and i find myself solving a design problem of like how do i make this in-app banner or this little card or this little share sheet look good and you iterate and iterate and iterate on it and design and then you step back and you're like 
that's I shouldn't it shouldn't even be here and like why why yeah. does it have to <laughs> it's not actually solving the problem I want to solve yeah why what is I, why was I using words why don't I just use a symbol or like something like that exactly like what you're talking about and I I think it's very rare for an individual to be able to do that and I think that's why teams and especially teams that can have people playing different roles there is a different level of polish and those apps definitely do feel different to me and especially at that stage, there was probably apps by big companies, which obviously did have lots of this, but have their own whole thing with them. Mm-hmm. And then indie apps that were individuals. But there probably wasn't a whole lot of teams in that sort of indie iOS space at that time. Yeah. And everything was being figured out. Like we didn't know yeah, uh, like what a modal is supposed to look like. Like does it go in the middle and it's centered or the bottom and it's where's like all the buttons were at the top of the screen because we had these title bars and this like it was just, you know, you can build a really nice app today with Apple system components and I have, you know, my own strong beliefs about that. I think you probably should. Like if you're doing your own design system, you're probably on the wrong track right off the bat. Um, a flighty mistake that I think we might have made, but just all those things have been solved. Like there, there's, if you need to show two sets of information that are really similar, but one thing is slightly different between the two of them, like here's a list of top movies and here's a list of top TV shows. That's a segmented controller. Like these, th- like, and users know what to expect whenever they see those controls. Yeah. I guess you could design something that's better than what Apple's engineers did for the last 10 years, but like it's, it's pretty unlikely. And so just use what they did. Yeah. Although the flip side is every once in a while, one of those, is how we move forward. You know what I mean? Somebody does come up with the the new paradigm that does work and then it gets adopted by everybody. So you kind of need both, but yeah. Um, I mean, to me, two come to mind. So Lauren Brichter with pull to refresh was like, yeah, okay, that's the classic example. That's a classic. And then I think so the, good. the other one for me is um, the clear to do app. Those guys came up with the swiping, like showing the delete button behind. If you swipe on a cell swipe, they came up with that as far as I'm aware. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, that one's universal now. Yeah. And I, you know, it's the thing I think of in the back of my head, like what are other ones of that? And those are the only two I've ever really thought of. Yeah. Cause there's also like the one that Apple took forever to give us like a card, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> a card that <laughs> can give us a half sheet. Uh, everybody had their own implementation of that for forever. And so we finally got that and that's amazing that we can have a universal experience for that. But yeah, I I mean, I tend to fall in the same category as you. Uh, Part of that though is me being lazy as a developer and (laughs) just wanting to use the one that I know. Dude, lazy is good. Like that. Yeah. (laughs) There's this, I don't think people use this enough and I get in a trap too, because it's so sexy to go into Figma and like push around pixels and work on shadows and pick the exact right color. I think it is at least you're like, man, I'm going to come up with something beautiful, but Nine times out of 10, you're working on maybe too much UI and not enough UX. And like, exactly, like you're, you, get, yeah. you need to zoom way out and be like, what is the problem I'm trying to solve here? Which to be fair, a lot of times you don't know what that is yet. So like you're, you're working through it. But anyway, one of the resources that I use that I think I don't hear being talked about enough and I think people should use a lot more is there's two of them. Basically, there's one called patterns.com. It's I think it's P-T-T-R-N-S.com. And then there's mobbing like mobbing without the g dot design and you can look up these like phrases of uh onboarding screens and see here's 20 top apps onboarding screens and i was gonna say nine times out of ten it's more than that 99 times out of 100 someone has something that's really similar to what you're trying to achieve and can cut out a ton of time of you iterating and iterating and iterating through something and at a bare minimum you're going to get great ideas and be able to make your own right it's like going through Pinterest if you're wanting to do some work on your house. Yes. It's yeah. hundred like percent. You're looking for something that's similar, um, but maybe not exactly the same. And yeah, I've, I've, I forgot about patterns actually. I remember it may have been you talking about it, um, but I do use Mobbin all the time and especially things that are outside of the, the sort of normal mm-hmm. Apple or Google uh, app conventions. That's such a good resource for like, stealing uh ideas or at least ways of like oh i see how they solve that like that doesn't perfectly map to mine but i can see how this links to that and obviously i'll have both of those in the show notes but yeah i couldn't uh, recommend those two as well enough all right so weather line <laughs> uh eventually it did release mm-hmm. um really quickly i 
I'm just going to, I'll spoil it. It, it was a successful product and lasted a, quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently you sold that. And so now you're totally focused on your new project, which I guess before we get to Flighty itself, was there other apps uh, in between those two or was Flighty your next big one? Yeah, it was Flighty. Um, there's, there's other small stuff that kind of false started, but it was Flighty. And that was uh, January of 2018 that we started that. Okay. And so I guess to take a quick stab at guessing what the the pipeline here to get to Flighty was, I'm guessing it started similarly as what you just said Weatherline started as. So at some point you're in an airport and your flight gets delayed and you're like, there's a better way to do this than Southwest or whatever app you were using. And so you start a note. Is that is that accurate? It's pretty much it. Yeah. It, it's like the, the one thing to layer on top of that is an app called Flight Track Pro by Mobiata. And it was one of the first, like it was in every Apple commercial. It was in photos in the store. It was in the demo phones. And it was one of the first holy shit moments of you have the status of your plane in your pocket. And it sounds crazy now, but that was insane uh, 10 years ago. Like that's only on the airport boards. Like when you're at the airport, how could you possibly know that right now? Um, And it was very well done. Uh, so it was very well done and a good use case and Apple was using it a ton because it solves a real problem. It ended up getting acquired by Expedia and they launched a redesigned version of it and it had such user backlash that they relaunched the old design of oh, it wow. side by side so you could use both and then eventually they ended up rolling both of them into Expedia quote unquote which basically means not it's doing dead. that because yeah. the functionality <laughs> and the design is not in right. Expedia. They rolled it into solving the problem that Expedia was wanting to solve. Uh, and basically for their took, portfolio. took nothing of it. Yeah, basically. So t- what that did, and that was uh, probably six, seven, eight years ago at this point. What it, what had happened, at least my theory is that it, they were so good so early that nobody even really tried to compete with it. Yeah. And then when it was gone, there was this void and I would, like we were saying earlier, new ones would come out or I would see new apps or teams thinking about working on it. And I was like, yes, someone's going to make it. And it, like you said, it got to the point where I was like, I, screw this. I'll make it. If no one else is going to make it, I'll do it. Um, I knew that I was looking for like my next thing and it was definitely up there in the top like two or three. And I hit that point of, I don't understand why no one else is doing this. Every kind of alleyway that I've looked down seems to make sense. The data's there. The market's there. People I talk to are interested, stuff like that. It feels like, so when I think of that, my head explodes from like, this feels overwhelming and complex because the amount of data sources that you'd have to deal with. But I guess since what you had already was Weatherline, that was already sort of the world you lived in. I mean, obviously very different, but you were dealing with a world where you were pulling in a bunch of data sources that each had their own payment schemes, I guess. Um, and you had to roll that into some sort of business model that worked or maybe didn't work. I guess we skipped over Weatherline too, but there was a whole fun uh, lesson learned about paid up front apps and uh, recurring revenue that I think I'm going to put words in your mouth here and correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm -hmm. sort of sold you on subscriptions definitely makes sense, at least if that's your, uh, if you have recurring uh, costs like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Weather was an interesting one because most people don't realize that you pay for the weather data and it feels like such a small thing that people don't understand why you would pay for it on an ongoing basis. Um, so that, that one was harder, but, and people still don't understand or, you know, people don't care. It's not their job. Like they don't understand right. about flight yeah. tracking data. Like, wow. And you're used to it. It's so ubiquitously available for free mm-hmm. that it doesn't feel like it pay. It costs money. Exactly. Yeah. So, Everything had gone subscription at that point, and this made total sense for subscription model. And kind of, the, I was looking; it, it fit really well with what I was looking for to do next. Like I felt like I needed to do something that had a higher ceiling. Like Weatherline was never intended to be a business, right? It was just like me proving to myself that I could make a product that people liked. It was like your stepping stone, and then you'll move on to bigger things. But it kind of grew into a bigger thing, I guess. It did, and and you know we skipped over a ton, but like the. 60 second version is totally separately from Weatherline. I got hired at Apple and was there for two years during Weatherline's life. 
and I couldn't work on it because you're not allowed to. So it would just kind of... You were allowed to leave it in the store? I was allowed to leave it in the store. You're not allowed to do uh, basically anything besides fix something that iOS broke. Okay. Like yeah, you can't add anything sense. new. It's just like if it stops launching, you can fix that. But I had... I didn't want it to be kind of like stuck in that mode. So I sold it to someone for that time period with the right to buy it back for a dollar. Um, and they kind of, Oh, nice. Yeah. So I sold it for a dollar, bought it back for a dollar. And, and it was a person who I trusted a lot and wasn't, um, actually the night before I went to work for Apple, I just sat there until six in the morning or four in the morning, writing down like, Hey, here's what I was going to do next. You're still in love with the product. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, it had just launched. Like it was crazy. I think it was like less than a month after it launched that I did this. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And it was, it was totally separately. Um, and you know, my job at Apple was in supply chain and operations. So it was like nothing to do with software, but I wanted it to keep living on. And I'm, I knew I wouldn't be at Apple forever. Um, so I was like, I keep it going. There's people who paid money for this. We need to keep going on it. Um, so I gave it to someone who would kind of, I trusted and would just keep things working. Okay. So then whenever you left Apple, then mm -hmm. you, you got it back and that's when you kind of looked at the holistic picture of what you need to do. Is that whenever you decided we need to switch this over to a subscription yep. or it can't really go on? Yeah. So I wanted to do a 2.0 and switch it to subs. I just been losing money on it every single year. And like people, you know, I lost money on it for five years probably. And it's, you know, real Goodness. money. Why'd you keep it in the store then? Um, it wasn't a ton of money. It was maybe like five or $10,000 a year I was losing. Um, <laughs> that seems like a ton of money. <laughs> I guess. I mean, when it, it was, I knew there was something there and it was working fine. Um, and again, I guess the five or 10,000 is with me getting paid nothing. So yeah, that was, I mean, that's the problem, right? Is uh, with paid up front. And so I was like, all right, let's do version two and switch to subscriptions. Like this thing has product love. Let's just, make it sustainable and kind of, you know, this is a mirror of what I did at flighty, but I iterated on it in the background and on my own for a year before we launched version two. Um, and that did. Okay. But if we try to get back to the main story, which is sorry, I worked for a product marketing company for three years and that was super interesting to learn like marketing and advertising. So I kind yeah, of feel like what I've done is like learned, operations and management and oil. And then I learned a lot of operations and supply chain and marketing and sales at Apple and then product marketing and kind of business strategy at this marketing company. And while I was there, I was part of my role was entrepreneur in residence. So I was able to do uh, separate things. So I started working on Weatherline and Flighty, but they knew and I knew all along the goal was I'm going to start something that is going to require me to leave this company. Um, right. Yeah. So Flighty got to, the idea was big enough, like you said, that I knew I worked on it there for like six months while I was doing my normal work and they were helping me with it. It was a super cool company and kind of. When you say work on it, this is before you started contracting out. This is like coming up with designs and a product plan and everything. Yeah. So flight, so I had solved a lot of that already in my head because I'd sat on it for three or four years. The way that flighty came to fruition, you, you guessed it exactly, is a flight on New Year's Day out of Fort Lauderdale. And I was in the Florida Keys. And if you've ever been down there, you have to drive on. There's only one. It's like a string of islands. There's only one highway out. And yeah. if it gets backed up, you're screwed. So we left early. I was with my traveling with my 85 year old grandmother. So you know, we drive for three hours and then we get to the airport and the plane is delayed or something like six hours. And I knew all the super nerdy like data sources where you could go find this stuff. And I was like piecing it all together on my own. And I was just so mad that this was easily knowable and nobody was yeah. doing it. And I, I, from a Chili's in Fort Lauderdale, I was, I tweeted something to the effect of F this, if no one else is going to do it, I'll build it. Who wants to build it with me? <laughs> I like that. All what is it? All all real business happens in a Chili's. Is that <laughs> the office quote? <laughs> yes, I was literally sitting there for six hours eating chips and salsa with my grandma and wife, and just started. People started replying, and I started putting their names in a spreadsheet of like, okay, this person could do this, this person could do that, and my kind of goal on that one was to build a build a longer kind of longer, bigger business with a core team, and so. We started out with like four or five people and all those people are 
share in the equity and also share in profit sharing. So uh, neither one of these companies, Weatherline was in the beginning, but I've always wanted, I never, I'm not the like, uh, let's spend a ton of money on marketing. Let's get a huge base of users that we have no idea how to monetize and then sell it. Yeah. Like I kind of was like, let's make money along the way. Like let's build a healthy business. Um, so when, when flighty or when weatherline had excess money into it, we would do what we call distributions. And then there's, we have, uh, agreed upon percentages for each of the people basically is like, that's the salary. And then the bonus slash shares is, when and if we sell the product, like the people have equity in it. And, you know, we can also buy out someone's equity if they leave. So it's... Yeah, yeah. So it's like a proper business, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which sounds weird. weird to say, but it feels like, I don't know, it, there, it does feel like there's a separation between the indie apps and the the real businesses. And uh, I, we talked about this some with, with Russ in the last episode where it's like, I feel like it's really healthy to see those blending a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we we definitely wanted to bring the like craft of indie apps and the love and the like build things for sustainability, but to a business. Um, and I'd always, I kind of have this larger theory that there's a kind of opening in the marketplace right now for niche subscription apps. So I was looking for something in that area and I wanted to do something pretty high priced and premium. I guess that's yeah. an adverse, adverse reaction to Weatherline, but it's like, let's build something where the, I can charge what seems like a crazy amount of money because people just need it that bad. And so, Flighty kind of checked all those boxes. And that that was one of my questions was uh, a lot of the... So, we'll talk about marketing here in a second, but like a lot of the initial reviews of which there was a lot, that was a, a big focus was this is an expensive app, but it was almost never like a knock on the product because it was like, but that's who they're targeting. It's like, this is for people who care about that. And it seems like it was an appropriate price for the actual features you're providing. How did you land on pricing? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that went into pricing, but like you knew ahead of time that this is going to be expensive for an app, which is historically usually really cheap. So how did you sort of land on here's who we're targeting and here's how we can make it feel like that's an appropriate price. Yeah. Oh man, there's so many things we, this is like what the question earlier, like if you're not the engineer, what do you do? And like, there's, a, I did so much. Um, yeah. There's a million things. Uh, let's see a couple. So you look at the data costs, like that's going to be one driver. You try to model right. that out. And then there's probably five to six data providers of this type of data. So then you got to go get trial APIs to all of them, start testing them in real life, see which ones are good at what, find their weaknesses. How do you merge them together? See if any of them are willing to do longer term partnerships, negotiate the contracts. Then what are, what are users going to pay for? Okay. How does that map to the feature set? And like, what are the costs for that? There's a, thing that I learned about when I was in the product marketing company called MRI. And it's basically like a gigantic survey of a ton of people in the US, mostly it's worldwide, but mostly in the US. And it just is a ton of data, like how many times did you fly in the last year? But also like how much money have you spent on home renovations and how often do you watch TV? And like just all a bazillion questions mapped to, let's see, like location where they live and how many kids do you have and how much do you make at your job and what industry are you in? So, it's this huge... For trying to calculate like a TAM sort of like... Basically. Yep. So, I'd been exposed to that at this product marketing company and it's a... I'm pretty sure it's a really expensive data set, but I had access to it. So, I was looking at like segmenting people. Okay, here's how many people who fly more than 10 times a year. Here's how many that fly more than five times a year and kind of breaking that down. How much do I think I could be able to charge each one of them because they have different the data and the thing we're solving is worth a different amount if you fly more and if you kind of are spend more time in airports. So yeah, that's just a massive ramble for like how I came up with that price. But I think that articulates that it's a huge problem <laughs> and none of that has to do with code. Yeah, it was a lot. And you know, there's surveys in there. There's this incredible, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember the name of it. Let me look it up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you just sent me a link to something van Westendorp's price sensitivity meter. Is that is that how you say it? Of course. I, how, how did you not know about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what is this? I see uh, a bunch of lines moving on a graph. Yeah, that's uh, you know me, lines on graphs. Um, <laughs> so on brand. Yeah. So th- I mean, this is a good example of going too deep in a subject and trying to figure it out, and then coming back up for air and applying it to your product. But I was I was like, how do people figure out how to price things? This it can't be 
what I, it can't be what everybody it can't be let's just go ask people let's write down what everybody else prices in this market and copy them like and i you know found this awesome segment of the internet that's really mathematical about price testing this thing when i saw this i was like oh my god it makes so much sense but basically it's four questions and the four questions build a uh like an intersection that in theory uh it's not sound like it's the perfect price obviously because that's can only be found through price or through multivariate testing i think but right it, it gets you pretty darn close to here's the most people will be willing to pay happily right like that's kind of what you want you don't really want the least or the most they'll pay but be super mad about it so it gets you there and real quickly the questions are basically like what would be so much what how much would be so expensive that you would not consider buying it what would be priced so low that you would consider it like oh man maybe this is not good enough for me so that's kind of your end caps right like too cheap right too expensive and then the next two try to kind of find the sweet spot so the next question is at what price would you consider it this product starting to get too expensive but not quite out of the question so you're trying to kind of find that like happy high spot and then at what point would you consider this to be a bargain so those that was in a survey that i'd sent out um so it was another kind of input um so how did you how did you send out surveys did you use like one of those services to to try and reach the actual market or was this like twitter so what i did was somewhere in there i tweeted here's what we're building if you're interested answer this survey and it was one of the signals that we were on the right path i think like 1700 people just voluntarily filled it out oh wow okay yeah i mean like 100 or 200 would have been like oh cool and it was yeah a thousand and you know 1.7 thousand so it was i had a ton of data and i'd asked i spent way too long building this uh, (laughs) survey that like because you can ask the wrong survey question and be really screwed. Like if you, oh yeah, yeah, it's a it's a whole science. Yeah, it's crazy. So that was part of that was part of the questionnaire, basically. Um, and then you know, all that said, it still came down to what's your gut. And I think yeah. what we ended up doing. So without going into the nitty gritty, boring details too much, but the price structure of how I pay for data for Flighty has changed, and that's been. I mean, if you think about like the value that Ryan has brought to Flighty, like that's probably one of the massive things that like nobody ever sees. But we have a super partnership with FlightAware mostly and then other flight tracking company or flight data companies that I don't know, maybe it's anywhere from like a quarter of a third of the time that I spend on like a given year is like working on that. And that enables us to do a lot of crazy tracking that other people can't do. Cause we can like for every flight that you track in flighty, we probably monitor, I mean, at minimum five. So probably more like eight to 10 flights that could impact yours. So when you think of like every flight, so at the beginning, our flight data was somewhere around 15 cents for every flight. So if you okay. start thinking, okay, we're going to do, let's just say 10 for easy math. It's like a dollar 50 per flight is what my cost is to you. Like, I at least need to be doubling, probably tripling that to not have to worry about margins too much. Just for the flight data, ignoring all the costs of development and everything Salaries like that. Salaries and servers and marketing and everything else. Yeah. So we, we have a, that's kind of like a list rate if you went and talked to these data companies and we have a better kind of price structure than that. But that took me a year of building relationships and talking to these people and knowing what to ask for. So all that went into the pricing. And at the end of the day, I think we probably, you know, I had experience with underpricing and I knew that there were going to be a top like cream of the crop customer that kind of didn't care at all what the pricing was. So for the, I felt like for the first year or two of the product, those were the people who I wouldn't have to explain what it does. I wouldn't have to explain the benefit. They would see it and know exactly what They'd be like, yes, I need this. The value proposition was pretty clear to them. Built in. Uh, yep. Yeah. You, we just had to get to them. We, we just had, they just had to know that we existed. So um, kind of the, the plan all along, which I think I was going to say is typical, but maybe it's not now in, now in the era of zero marginal cost, but it's like charge more than we think we need to and go after the super core customer who doesn't really care how much we charge. And then we'll go down market and figure out things from there. Yeah. So at at the beginning, 
and still now you had, you know, your subscription tier that has all the pro features, but there is a free tier. Yeah. How do you like draw the line for what falls under free and whatnot? Cause the free tier still has some costs for you. Yes. Yeah. This is a really hard problem. And as my cost structure changed, like what we could or couldn't include in that free tier changes a ton, but you can't go out to the market or you can't say to your users like, oh, all of a sudden everything that's free has changed. So it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening behind the scenes that people don't see or know about, or, you know, it's not their responsibility. So I, you know, I talked to other founders that are kind of make similar apps that we do in DM and then then we end up iMessaging or, you know, calling or talking to each other. Um, and, and it's a common question that people ask me. And the other one is, uh, why do you have a lifetime plan or should I do lifetime? Yeah. I was wondering that too. Yeah. I kind of have, you know, I, I hold a lot of strong opinions. I like to think that I am willing to change them with when faced with, uh, <laughs> the information that proves it wrong. But like, that's kind of my personality is like, I'm, I'm more of the like, let's get in a room. You loudly state your opinion and why, and I'll loudly state my opinion and why, and we leave friends and we, one of us is right. And like, I don't, it's, you know, people often meet me in real life and say that I'm like more gentle than I am on Twitter. And that's a nice way to say <laughs> it. And I'm like, I, yeah, I have an opinion and I'm going to say it like, uh, and I, I want people to say back, like, you're an idiot like that. Look at this over here. Or did you know this? Or did you know that? Like, that's kind of how I view good productive teams, which doesn't really interact very well with the vibe on Twitter. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. You lose a little nuance uh, with just characters. Yeah. And and I, I, so I kind of like that, like, um, let's bash heads and come up with the best thing. I think that's stones, polishing stones or whatever. Yeah. Like that's the way to get egos out of the way. Like I, I had ex- in the marketing agency, I'd experienced a lot of the, very gentle like oh that's a good idea what about if we do this also the like yes and i don't know if you've heard that phrase like instead of saying yes so that uh, i it just didn't work for me as a human so anyway so lifetime and free tiers right so oh man i gotta make this quicker don't i let's see so free what i'd say to friends who will remain nameless for the protect their own identity is a lot of us and by us i mean kind of product builder engineering type really care way too much about what their costs are like how much do i pay for this flight data okay the stuff that's free i'll give away and i think that i mean you like you were saying earlier that's the head in the weeds approach to this like you have to totally separate yourself one exercise i like to do is i like to pretend that flighty is someone else's app and what would I expect to see or what would I tell them to do? Because like when it's your own, you know way too much information. You're like, yeah, oh, if we yeah. if we do this, then our server costs will go up to like blah, 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 blah. It's like that, you got to figure that out on your own. Like to the user, what should be free? In flight, it's like, okay, I should be able to get basic flight information so that I can use this in perpetuity and you can have a longer time frame to convince me to get upsold. And then beyond that, it, it basically comes down to what are the features that someone who's a light user would need and what are the features that someone who's getting a lot of value out of this would need. And that's where you draw the line because you want the people who are getting value to give you value. And it's kind of it. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Instead of trying to draw the line at the costs themselves. I do think that there's an l- extra nuance to that, which is the, the story you can tell. Mm-hmm. So like, like with weather... It does like the cost structure does matter. And I think it, I've seen at least some of apps that can tell the story of this is why this is pro. Mm-hmm. And that's that alone does seem like that's a, a worthy reason to draw that line there, I guess, maybe. I agree with you to an extent. So I think maybe it's because my market. Um... Yeah, your market doesn't care. They probably don't know who you are the same way that a lot of indie uh, developers, there's a more personal connection. So you could tell that story and they're going to care. Right. So like if you're Christian and you're working on Apollo, it's like, those are Reddit people. If you explain yeah. to them with logic, I pay for this data. Therefore I charge for this data. They get it. But like, like when was the last time you interacted with any company out in the real world, quote unquote, that did that? Like you, you don't care. Like you want whatever your lawn mode or you want like, it's like, I, 
I judge it based on how much value I'm going to get. Right. So, yes, yeah. we, we do have a slide. Like, we do have a page. I don't know why I said slide. We do have a page in <laughs> Flighty that it says, like, here's why it costs that much for people that dig down into it. But I don't really think for a lot of markets, it's really that important. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I'm definitely thinking in those more, you know, small indie, your core audience is people who know who you are mindset. Because it's a lot harder to, like you said, it, if that's part of your story, it has to be part of your main marketing. And for the vast majority of products, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And it's a losing battle too. Like, what are you going to say? Like, it cost me about a dollar to track each one of your flights. Therefore, I charge $50 per year for unlimited flights. It's like, then the user immediately says, oh, I don't travel 50 times a year. So, you're yeah. overcharging me. Like, you never, never is a user going to be like, oh, okay, that, so you get 50% margin. Great. Like, that doesn't work. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so, as I always do, I dig way too deep into details and we ran out of time. So, we didn't get to talk at all about uh, what I'm sure are fun adventures in pandemic land where mm -hmm. uh, the flight industry was slightly affected um, and may or may not have slightly affected you. I don't, I don't remember if you talked about that. It's been a little while since I listened to it, but you did an episode with Subclub, which I'll link in the show notes. That was awesome. And obviously that goes a little more into the, the business side of things. Um, but definitely recommend people check that out. Did you talk about the pandemic related stuff there? I can't remember. It came out re somewhat recently. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you the question I ask everybody, which is what's a person or people out there that inspired you that you'd recommend other people check out? Mm. Well, I kind of already talked about it in the beginning, but Lauren Brichter has disappeared from the internet. So, Well, he resurfaced to, to tell us uh, about the, the follies of Chrome uh, yeah, for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> he builds incredible handcrafted uh, games, letterpress, and then disappears and then stirs up controversy on Chrome and disappears. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I have a super unique answer to this, unfortunately. Um, you know, I find a lot of inspiration. I guess your question wasn't really inspiration, but I re I talked to Gruber a decent amount. We've become kind of close friends. And so, he's an incredible person to bounce stuff off of. But uh, I think those taste makers that are out in the kind of app world are the, the ones we all kind of know about. Um, and people are, I would just say people are incredibly generous with their time on Twitter and in uh, DM. If you can kind of tell a little bit of here's why I'm asking the question and what do you think? And, um, you know, people are, are often asked too generic of a question, so it's impossible to answer. But if you can give them a little bit of a context, uh, people are super duper helpful. So like, I just got one this morning that asked, uh, I want to become a tech CEO. How uh. would you say that that has enough, uh, <laughs> context to it or is that too generic? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Some people. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I always have to remind myself, like the person behind that could be like 13, 14, 16. Years. I, I assume it's that tough. usually. And sometimes uh, it's, uh, I try not to get too judgy, but sometimes, sometimes they do make me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, it's sometimes you have to ignore some, which is sad. I used to try to answer everything and now it's like I don't have time. But it, you know, it's just like trying to get back because so many people answer dumb questions for me too. Anyway. Yeah, we all came from a place of being uh, being dumb. Yeah, I mean, it's the way things go. Um, I would say it's the typical Gruber, Marco. I have a design folder on my phone. Let's see what's in that. Maybe that's a good answer. And I just kind of, these are the apps I flip through when it's like, look for a product that makes you feel something and uh, has a cohesive kind of story to it. So, what's in here? Transit. I don't have, I don't ever ride buses or subways or whatever, but that app is amazing. I've heard lots of people say that. I'm in the same boat though. Maybe I should just like play around with it. Yeah. So, uh, Felix is uh, one of the early designers and engineers on that product and uh, he talks about stuff on Twitter. Um, the GitHub mobile app is actually insane. Uh, yeah. Those guys are just, I, I mean, obviously they know how to ship code, <laughs> but like, but it's weird seeing that out of a, uh, mm -hmm. like corporate team, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. A hundred percent. 
um, and a folder like who would have ever thought that the GitHub mobile app would be in my design folder? Yeah. <laughs> so like it speaks to the quality of their team. Uh, deliveries. Mm, yeah. I think, yeah, my, Mike is just, when I am struggling with how do I do this? Um, and it's, we're talking basic stuff like uh, how do you build a frequent ask questions area on your app? How do you, what happens when a subscription is lapsed? Like, how do you tell that to the user and tell them to consider upgrading or here's what they lost? Like all that stuff that people can really, apps can really overlook. And when you get there as a user, it feels gross and it's like not solved well. The way that, I mean, deliveries is an unbelievable masterpiece of that stuff from the point of view that it also, in my opinion, he... You kind of have to minimize the ongoing effort from those things. So you have to build them in a way where it's sustainable to you, but it's also mm. useful for the user. So it doesn't have a ton of your time and it doesn't. Right. Once you set it up, you should be able to kind of leave it alone for a while unless something changes. Yeah. And the balance that Mike strikes with, it works and solves the core problems really well, but in a way that doesn't take me three months to build. It's just incredible so that's an app that when i'm struggling with something i'll go get myself into that state and see what he's done <laughs> he the solutions he comes up with that are i guess 80 20 it's like that solves the right thing perfectly and like the other stuff is available but you focus on the main thing and you nailed it um i think he does an incredible job so yeah there's a quick rant on some that i look at man see you said you didn't have good answers but those were already like those were awesome okay cool yeah awesome well thank you so much for giving me your time. This was, uh, this was really fun. And I didn't even talk about like flighty has been one of those apps that exactly what you're talking about. I, I am not in your core audience of people who, uh, it necessarily makes sense for, but I will sometimes subscribe for a month if I'm going to fly just because I want to play with it. And I will sometimes just open it up just to see how different interactions work. Uh, because it, it both feels native, but also, it feels like its own thing, if that makes sense. And I, I don't know. I really, really like it a lot. Um, and so it was really cool getting to talk to you about some of these underlying details that overwhelm me to even think about. Um, so you should be proud of what you've done. <laughs> yeah. Credit, credit to the team there. You know, it's, they deal with me, uh, on a daily basis. So credit <laughs> to them, but like, yeah, our design language, um, Marcus, our designer came up with, you know, he gets all the credit for that. I just, push back on him so uh we i appreciate it i'll pass it along to the team uh so thank you on their behalf awesome so uh where can people find you and your work yeah twitter is probably the easiest place for me so it's my handle is r jonesy which is just r jones and then a y um and you can find links to flighty and kind of other stuff i do and talk about in my profile awesome thanks for listening if you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched FM. I'd really appreciate a rating or review in Apple podcasts, overcast, or whatever your podcast of choice happens to be. And you can find show notes and more at launched FM.com. Launched FM.